Welcome to Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today is our 40th episode, and we get the chance to celebrate the 140th anniversary of Gowan Orchards with the Gowan family, producers of award-winning apples and award-winning cider. Let's have a listen. Gowan Orchards in Philo, California on a rainy fall day with the Gowan family. Thanks for joining us on Menu Stories today. Thanks for having us. We're so glad you're here. I'm Sharon Gowan and I'm primarily a cider maker and do tastings. I am Josephine Gowan and I am the matriarch of the family. I'm Don Gowan. I oversee the orchards and then oversee the cider business as well. I'm Jacob Gowan, and I primarily help with tastings and just whatever comes up. And you are all related. That's what I'm told. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. So what is Gowan's Orchards, and and what do you produce here? So our family's been growing apples here on this farm since 1876, so we're celebrating our 140th harvest this year. We have over 80 different varieties of apples that we grow, plus we grow pears and lots of vegetables in our farm garden as well, and berries and lots of things. Fairly recently, just started producing hard cider. We now are doing varietal and blended ciders out of our various heirlooms so they're very similar to wines now where you can have a varietal in a wine and a varietal in a cider as well. It's been really exciting to take some of these heirlooms and kind of share them with people in a different way. How recently did you start making hard cider? Well um, unofficially for personal use for a while (laughs) but officially um, in 2014. Well we've been producing fresh cider for a really long time. Um, What it's 50 years? Okay, 65 years. So my husband, Don, the kids, he's the kid, Joe's the mom, and they would do fresh cider, sweet cider. And if you put fresh apple juice in your refrigerator and it stays there for a week or so, it starts to get bubbly. So you're starting to make hard cider. (laughs) So that was actually one of my mom's favorite things is she always would like Gowan's cider put it in the refrigerator and then she gets a little bit of a bubbly cider a week or so later. So that's the unofficial part. Got it. Okay. Interesting. That's cool. 140 years is a long time. Yeah. So what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) Tell them about the Studebakers coming in here and the Gowans coming in. Okay. Okay. The Studebakers came into the valley in 1875. They traded a 16-horse team for a piece of property near Philo. Then they bought the property that we are on now from the Nunn family and not the nuns. The people's name were Nunn. And there were apples here at the time so that we have trees here that are approximately at 200 years. My father-in-law and my mother-in-law got married. They incorporated the place together. The Studebaker and Gowan place got together and they raised apples. My grandfather-in-law, Studebaker, had bought some trees from the Low Sierras, which are now called the Sierra Beauty Apples, which is one of the heirloom apples that we are proud to have right now. And that's a native then to California. Yes, it's a native Californian apple. In the 30s, my mother-in-law sold fruit under the oak tree. That's what's where we have the oak tree fruit stand. She would sell them out under a tree, and she would sell apples and berries and things that were in season. And my father-in-law would peddle the fruit to the coast. He would go to uh, Susun Valley and buy apples and peaches and apricots and take them and peddle them all the way from Cloverdale through to Fort Bragg and also down to Point Arena. And in 1946, Jim and I came home. He was in the service and I was in school, nursing school. We came home and Jim decided that he wanted to go into the fresh 
the apple business. So we started selling, packed the apples, took them to San Francisco at the uh, San Francisco market. We developed that market really good till where we needed more space. It's a wholesale place where they sold it out to the grocery stores. Let me back up. You met you met a gentleman. You kind of skipped over that part. He sounds like an important part of the story. Tell about meeting Dad. Oh, oh. Not well, too much. <laughs> Not all the details. Uh, uh, Jim and I were both in Albuquerque. He was stationed at Kirkland Field, and I was going to Regina School of Nursing. And we had a blind date, which uh, turned out to be very blind, because we were left with the couple that took us on the blind date disappeared, but we were left alone. But after that, we decided to, well, I guess, get together. We had fun together. We had a snowball fight in Albuquerque. And uh, it was the first snow of the year, which was April the 14th, 1945. And after that, he was still in the service, and he went to Greenberg. The war ended then, so he came home, and he stopped and brought me to Philo. His folks accepted me, so we got married, and here we are. That must have been nerve-wracking. It sounds like you were kind of waiting for them to give the approval. Well, not really. I, I, <laughs> I really was wanting to know if I, would, I could stand to live here, which was pretty difficult when you're from the high plains to live into a little place that's covered up with trees and down in a valley. You used to open air, you know. It was, it was hard to go to a place where you couldn't see for 100 miles. That's right. As my sister-in-law said, your kids could go on three days, and you wouldn't miss them because you could still see them. In yeah, you don't think about that. There's a lot of hiding places out here. <laughs> so you're from Albuquerque, New Mexico? Actually, I'm from around Clovis, New Mexico. I went to school in Albuquerque. So Jim was from Philo, so that was his family that... This is his home place. So what was that like kind of coming into this lifestyle from being the a nurse? The lifestyle was, was kind of different, but having Jim with me as a companion was wonderful. You can say that I was sort of like one of those kids that follows their brother around. <laughs> I followed Jim around for everything, and we lived with his mother and father, so I didn't have to do anything. We spent our whole year and a half honeymoon. He was teaching me how to how to be an apple and fruit grower, where I wasn't used to any of that before. Yeah, but you did grow up on a farm. I did grow up on a farm, yes, a, a cattle farm and wheat. So you were somewhat familiar with, like, getting oh, I dirty farming, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> being out, out in yeah. nature. So what were some of your first memories on the orchard? Um, Don, maybe we can start with you since you were the first to arrive after your mother. Um, the first memories would be riding on the tractors with my father when I was pretty young and moving the irrigation pipe in the orchard and driving when I could barely see over, over the dashboard of the Jeep for my brothers picking up pipe. All I had to do was step on the brake and the, and the clutch and I was old enough to drive. <laughs> Um, and, and making the, the sweet cider, the, the apple juice, Saturdays were uh, reserved for that. So as a family, if you couldn't find something better to do, you got to make cider. Some process between trimming, pressing, jugging, capping, labeling. So we spent a lot of Saturdays making cider. One of my other great memories is, is going away to college for months at a time. I went to Cal Poly in San Luis. And coming home, especially in the fall when the apples were on the trees, you, you come through a dip to get to our ranch. And coming up out of the dip and seeing the irrigated trees with the full load of apples was it was home. It meant I was home. That was probably my strongest memory of the ranch. And so how did you meet Sharon? When I went, graduated from Cal Poly, I had one class that I needed to finish. So I went back for summer school to uh, finish the one class and I kind of procrastinated and being a senior I was going to get the class so I didn't worry about registering 
are getting a place to live. And we had a friend, and I said, hey, uh, you know, see if I can stay on, on the couch for a couple of weeks until I get a place. And, and he worked it out. And uh, then one of the roommates moved out, so we ended up living together for the summer. And at the end of summer, we kind of decided that we could put up with each other. When Wait, this was Sharon that you with were Sharon, living with. Yeah. Oh, so she was the roommate this whole time. She was a roommate, yeah. We, she was a, okay. a housemate. So <laughs> we spent the summer as housemates, and at the end of summer, we started, we started, dating. started dating. At the So we, uh, so we dated for about nine months, and and then we got married. Were you a student at Cal Poly? I was, yeah. I majored in agricultural engineering, food processing, and I was managing the house when this gentleman wanted to rent the couch, and I figured, sure, I can rent a couch. <laughs> you were kind of the original Airbnb. There you go. <laughs> you invented it. He paid his rent on time, so everything went well. I talked him into taking a dance class with me. We had a lot of fun dancing, and so um, I thought, you know, that seems like a nice thing to do the rest of your life. <laughs> so what was your first time coming to the orchard and ex- experiencing Gowan orchards and coming to Philo? I vividly remember coming to Cloverdale and then getting on Highway 128, which is a really curvy road, and it was at night. And coming to the sign that says 16 miles to Philo and 9 miles to Boonville, and looking at that sign and thinking, who would choose to live this far from everywhere? <laughs> And when I got into the valley, and I met up with Don and um, got to meet his family, and everybody was wonderful and kind and sweet. And I remember looking up at the sky, and here there's no light pollution. It's really, really dark, and the sky is brilliant. It's so beautiful. And that was in the fall. And of course, the apples were on the trees, and the orchard smells lovely. And it was just—it was just such a pretty, beautiful time. And then I understood why people choose to live here. Where are you from? I grew up in Petaluma. My parents are in agriculture also. They have a dairy, and most of my family is involved um, in that way. And I didn't know what I was going to do when I went to college, and so I studied you know, food and agriculture and equipment and engineering and stuff. So it's been kind of a nice way to use a little bit of that, in, especially in the cider-making part of it. Don, what made you decide to come back from university and stay in Philo and work on the family business? When I left, I wanted nothing to do with agriculture. I wanted to go into business. I didn't want to come back to the farm, didn't want to move pipe, didn't want to <laughs> drive tractor. I had had my fill of it. But I went to JC, and so I took an ag econ class, and I said, oh, if this is ag, I, I can do this. This is interesting. So the business end of ag was really interesting to me. So when I went to Cal Poly and I got my farm management ag business degree, it was a natural fit to come back at the time we were growing pretty heavily in the late 80s, and there was an opportunity in the business management end of the farm. That's why I came back. There was a position here available for me, and it was the part of the business that I was really interested in. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, an ongoing series of stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Sharon, Don, Jacob, and Josephine Gowan of Gowan Orchards. And so eventually, after a time, Jacob came along. <laughs> what was your first memory growing up on the farm and on the orchard? I think probably my first memory that I haven't been told is a memory uh, is probably farmer's markets. My sister and I used to go and help out at farmer's markets with my grandma and grandpa quite a bit. 
and I have this one really vivid memory of being just head above the table and trying to hand somebody a, an apple, and that was pretty much the earliest memory I have of being on the farm. Yeah. It was fun, too. Those are good times. Stopping by Wendy's on the way back and mm-hmm. getting to hang out. That was a really fun time. So what made you want to continue to work on the family business? Like, what, what drew you into being a part of this? Family? <laughs> I mean, that's probably the most generic answer I can give, but really, that's what my family does, and that's who I want to be around. I primarily help with tasting events and kind of introducing people to the cider, which has been a really, really fun time. I do a lot of research on machinery and kind of pricing out, amateurizing the uh, equipment that we need for the cider making part of the process and kind of fill in the gaps as needed. What kind of equipment do you use mostly here? Well, we uh, just, I guess yesterday, got our brand new press working which has been a blast, uh, getting the grinder and the uh, mash pump for that as well, and just kind of building out the cider making side of the process, which has been really fun. <laughs> Being in wine country, we have a lot of businesses in the area that are really fantastic for what we're trying to do because they have, I think, Prospero has the U.S. headquarters in Sonoma County, which is about a 45-minute drive away. So pretty much anything we need for winemaking or cider making is about an hour away at the very most. I'm also guessing you get some inspiration from the process of the local winemakers, which are obviously some of the biggest winemakers in the world, right in your backyard as well. How does that influence what you guys are doing here? We have quite a few friends in the wine industry and a bunch of support from people we know, both from my high school and just from my parents' friends. And it's been really awesome to have them kind of supporting us and really ushering us through the process. Cider is an interesting beverage because it really exists between beer and wine. You can have varietal ciders that really express the character of that fruit. It's also served on tap and it has bubbles, so it's sparkling wine or it's like beer. And it can be still like a a typical wine where it doesn't have any bubbles. So it has this entire range. So being here and having the brewers and having the winemakers and all of that built up infrastructure to support those businesses and then having a 140 years of curating the best flavored apples to grow and then keeping those heirlooms instead of, say, going to more modern varieties. You have this rich history and palette of flavors that you can now draw from. It's a kind of a perfect match, really. I think that's probably part of what excited Jacob, too, is it's an entrepreneurial venture and uh, something new. It's a brand new chapter for an old family book. Right, because you mentioned you only recently started making hard cider. Right. So what what made that happen? What inspired that move and that transition? Well, we had been thinking about it for quite a while and been doing some, some tasting and considering it. And we had decided that since we have some really unique varieties and we're in a really unique growing region, it's, it's considered world class. It's become really well known for Pinot varieties here in Anderson Valley. But the very same things that benefit wine grapes do the same tremendous wonders for apples as well. So long warm days, cool nights, long growing season, good flavor development. Plus, we've selected apples for the best flavor over the generations. So we were considering it, and we were actually thinking about selling some of our apples to more cider makers. And we have had more and more purchase them when they're looking for a particular flavor or aromatics or something along those lines. And we were going to do more of that. And Don wanted to go to this class to learn about cider making so we could learn how to better serve people buying apples from us for their cider. And we ended up kind of looking at each other and going, well, wait a minute, maybe we can do this. So what gave you the confidence that you could, in fact, do this? I think both of our backgrounds and training help, business background, engineering, food processing, 
already having the experience of making sweet cider and then the the local support and then there's also courses that are offered around the world essentially where you can go and study cider making and all three of us did those courses and did additional courses on top of that just to get those basics in so it's been a continuous learning process and then we started making cider and we made hundreds of batches of cider. So we would ferment out separate batches with a variety and then pair it with a different yeast and basically experiment along the process to see which yeast varietal combination really brought the most flavor out, which was most interesting. Going through that process for a couple of years before we became official, I think really helped us go, okay, we would drink this, so (laughs) we're good. (laughs) So how does one make cider? Unlike grapes, where if you squish a grape, you get juice. For apples, you have to grind them up somehow. So if you grind them up and make a mash, then you can take that and you can press it. And that's where you get the juice. If you put that into a jug and cap it, that's sweet cider. In some countries, that's just called juice. In the U.S., we call it cider. And then if you ferment that, do this very much like white wine. In red wines, you would ferment it on the skins, and that's what gives it that red color. But in white wines, you take the juice, not the skins. You let that ferment. You might put a yeast in there. And that might take a week or two weeks to ferment. So the yeast is doing its magic, and it's turning all that wonderful sugar into alcohol. And for cider, it takes all of the sugars. There's no residual sugars left so cider will go very 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 dry and then some cider makers will very quickly bottle that and put it out we tend to take ours and let it mature a little bit because we like how those flavors develop and then we'll do a blending we'll do one of our ciders is a proprietary blend of different heirloom apples and so we'll take certain percentages of those to create that cider and that's our 1876 that's the one that won the best of show in the california cider competition this year it's very popular cider people from the UK and England and Australia and Ireland, when they taste that, they go, oh, this tastes like our orchards back home. And it smells and tastes actually like a late harvest fall orchard. If you walk into an orchard, you'll smell that same smell. And so it's a fun cider because people that have had ciders from around the world go, okay, that's familiar. That's home. So that's how you make cider. (laughs) (laughs) Easy enough. They actually say that the rule for making good cider, that you start with really good ripe apples and then you just don't miss it up after that. <laughs> just don't Two rules. So you don't really add any sweetness back into the process at all. It all naturally comes from the apple. Yes and no. Because wines have residual sugar, people are used to drinking wines that have a little, there's something left there. But in apples, there isn't. So we have produced completely dry ciders that's just the product of the fermentation there is no sweetness left like zero and some people think that that's really what they want is is a dry but most of the time it's rare to find a cider that's really really dry there are some really good ones out there though most of the ciders that people are accustomed to drinking in the U.S. have some sweetness added back in. And it can be added back in with juice or it can be added in just with sugar. Everything can have, sugar has the least effect on the actual flavor of it. Whereas juice will have its own different flavor. When apples ferment, there's actually a cider flavor that is distinctive just to cider. And so you can decide how you're going to do any back sweetening. Kind of the fun thing about cider is it's, it's a really flexible product. 
Usually in grocery stores, you get apples that are not quite ripe. Most grocery stores want unripe apples, so they will last longer on their shelves. And so you get apples that never did develop their regular flavors. So people are usually shocked to find out the flavor of an actual ripe Golden Delicious or a Jonathan or a Sierra Beauty. People love finding out that they're different. They, they really didn't know that. And, and it's a fun way to explore it and kind of be connected to that heritage. Heirloom typically means an apple is over about 100 years old. Lots of more modern crosses and apples have been developed for grocery store apples. For a grocery store, they need to be big and pretty and round and all that. But there are some apples that were really prized, like in the early 1900s. And the Sierra Beauty is one of those. Planted in 1906, Jacob's great-great-grandfather uh, was riding around in horse and wagon at that time and came back with a stick of wood, which is how you graft, and grafted that and grew a tree and then grew more trees from that and grafted that out. And so that variety was prized because back then, people didn't have a lot of refrigeration or none, which means you would really like an apple that stayed around a long time and didn't start to rot. And a Sierra Beauty was considered a keeper. Not only that, it had really great flavor. So it was really good for pies. It was really good for juice. It was really good for eating. And you could keep it in your cool basement or a cool place for a long, long time and it'd still stay good. In the 80s, some researchers came by and said that they had been trying to locate Sierra Beauty apples for about 10 years. What we discovered was that they had just faded away from commercial orchards. They'd faded away from nurseries. And if anybody did happen to have a Sierra Beauty tree, nobody could find it. And so we essentially became the mother orchards for the Sierra Beauty apple. And the Gowan family, this is before my time, but they, they were all credited basically with saving the Sierra Beauty from extinction, which is kind of cool because it's one of only four known California native apples. So, and it's a good one. And we sell some Sierra Beauties that we make into cider now into a hard cider. The Sierra Beauty won a gold medal at the cider competition this year. The Sierra Beauty is a spur apple, which means that it has a very short stem. It's easy to bruise it picking it. Also, it is an apple that cannot stand real hot weather. So people in the Central Valley had tried them, but in Northern California, they do grow good. It gets really hot in the Central Valley. That's probably yeah. a big part of it for them, too, it sounds like. And so these were the trees that you were also speaking about when you were sharing his trees. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this was your father-in-law? No, my grandfather-in-law. Your, your grandfather-in-law <laughs> found, and what was his name? George Studebaker. So how did George find out about this apple and how did he come across this? Well, when we talked about the family being peddlers, well, he did the same thing and he would look for fruits and all. And he happened to be in the in the uh, Jacksonville area and he found this tree and this apple that he liked and decided that it was something that he would like to propagate, which he did. And so he did that just by taking a branch of that tree and grafting it on to one of the trees that was already growing here. That's fascinating. The only thing is you have to be careful because of the spur quality of the tree. A spur is a little stick that stands out from the blossom, and it easily bruises the apples, which is also another thing. In picking, it's awfully hard to pick them. It took us a long time to realize how we could pick them for fresh. You had to have a special picker. When you pick a Golden Delicious, you pick it up. When you stick it Sierra Beauty, you twist it off.
apples are roses. Our roses and apples are really closely related. And it probably is something in its gene that kicks back to a rose and the thorn on a rose bush. I'm not a botanist <laughs> to that point. Yeah. It's about the extent of my pomology studies. I had no idea that roses and apples were from the same family. Sarah Beauties, they are a temperamental tree. Um, they don't like the heat. Their tendencies to do things gets worse. Their sunburn is worse. Just all the traits that they have that aren't good are amplified when you get warmer. Because they don't have as much leaves. Yeah, they, they, they don't have a lot of leaf cover. Granny Smith have lots of leaves. Red Delicious have more leaves. So different trees have different traits. And Sarah Beauty likes it here. It likes the coastal. If it were a grape, it would be a pinot. It loves the area. It, it likes the size. It's, it's a good sizing apple. If you grow a Sarah Beauty and a Red Delicious side by side, the Sierra Beauty will always be bigger than the Red Delicious under the exact same conditions. It just It's an apple that likes the size. Probably has a lot more cells than a red delicious and that's what determines the size of an apple does that also affect their firmness at all or yeah an apple with more cells is more firm because the cells are smaller when the cells get bigger the tighter the cells the firmer it'll be because they kind of grow into each other and so there's less space and interesting all apples come from Kazakhstan. that's that's the home country every apple can trace its lineage back to there. We hope at some point in the near future to go to Kazakhstan and see the wild forest. We have oakland forests in California and redwood forests. They have apple forests. So, uh, all all the, yeah, but these are these are trees grown from seed. Every seed in an apple is genetically different. They may be very very similar, but they're not exactly the same. So when you propagate an apple, you have to do it from a cutting to get exactly the same tree. So if we want Sierra Beauties, we have to do it from the cutting from the limb. You will grow an apple that's probably similar to Sierra Beauty from the seed, but it won't be exactly the same. It'll it won't have be a different. A clone, it'll be. It won't be a clone. Yeah. And so Red Delicious are cloned from the scion, from the piece of wood, where in Kazakhstan, these apples fall off the tree, they rot, they grow. So it's really neat. I would love to see that. They're doing some research into that of different varieties. Apparently, most domesticated trees come from about two of those wild varieties. And there's, a, I think, 35 or something known families. But most domesticated commercial trees come from two of those. So there's a whole lot of genetic diversity there that is really kind of amazing. But those have also been developed now into nearly 20,000 different varieties of apples that are known throughout the world. So what's been the most challenging thing about everything that you've done with Gowan Orchards? Probably our most challenging thing is changing regulations and the costs that come along with that. Right now we're facing the food safety challenges. We're too big to be small and too small to be big. There's 10 to 15 brands in Washington state that are over 10,000 acres. Food safety really doesn't mean much to them cost-wise. We're at 130 acres of apples. Our cost for food safety is going to be a major part of our budget if we continue to try and and grow fruit for the fresh market. If you get below the requirement for food safety, then you don't have those expenses. So we're just right at the lower edge of having to have food safety program. And for us, the, the process isn't the expensive part. It's the certification, it's the government regulation, the bookkeeping and all that that goes with it that looks like it'll become too cumbersome for us to continue. That's probably our biggest challenge is the government regulations that go. So that might impact your ability to sell apples as produce. Right. It has the potential to really affect our fresh market. The nice thing about cider and fermentation 
is none of that stuff can live through fermentation. Yeast is a great purifier. In England, the saying is, is water is for bathing, cider is for drinking. <laughs> um, your, your product is clean, it's stable. So you're saying is to be healthier, we should all drink a little more cider. You should eat a few apples, but you drink a lot of cider. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I think we can all follow that advice. <laughs> What's been the most rewarding thing about what you've been able to do with Gallon and seeing it blossom? so to speak. Do you like how I did that? Well done. (laughs) The most fun part of this is taking our cider out to events and pouring them for people. People are so supportive and so excited to hear that our 140-year-old family farm is starting a new chapter and they can, in a way, more easily take part in that and take it with them and celebrate it with us. Sometimes people, it takes them a couple times to realize when we say we're celebrating our 140th harvest, they'll say, oh, 140, wait, 140? They'll, and then, then they'll give us high fives, which, you know, I kind of have in my mind, like there's a whole row of people behind me, the Gowans doing the high five with me, but they love it. And they especially like trying different flavors of cider that actually are from the apples. That's really the most fun part, I think, is going out and people discovering the farm and feeling like they're a part of helping our farm continue on. Joe, you've seen it obviously the longest out of everybody sitting at this table. So how does it make you feel to see how far it's come? Keep the business going and to keep the family farm going. It's great to be able to find a way to have the chance to sell fresh apples along with the the cider. And it is great to have someone that wants to go ahead and keep the family farm going. (laughs) That was excellent. The great thing about this is being the fifth generation on one side and the fourth generation on the other side and continuing on a family tradition and seeing the ranch become truly viable again. So as we've been able to uh, do this, it's been great to see another opportunity and and a way to hopefully ensure the passing of the ranch on for another 140 years. I'd be very honored if I was able to be a part of that. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time and having us out here. We can't wait to explore the orchards and taste some more of the apples and the cider. Let's get to it. (laughs) You just heard the 40th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. If you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. There you'll also find the complete episode with the Gowan family, complete with pictures and a behind-the-scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories, and on Twitter, we're at Menu underscore Stories. This podcast is also available on iTunes. This episode was produced by yours truly, photographed by Monica Lowe, and assisted by me, and all video production work was done by Patrick Wong. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating.